Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. I mean, he's like, pause. No, no, like Kurt always says, welcome back. And then he has to throw thanks at the end. He has to be the one that says thank you every well, time. I like to talk last. Yep. Now, if you and hear first. some munching noises, that's Kurt eating what looks to be like pepper jack. There's a little pepper jack. There's a little cheddar. Kurt always eats. Like if you call him, he will start eating. And then you get to listen to that over the phone. It's mm. horrible. I'm like, that's not true. Call me back when you're done eating because I can't, I can't do it. Yeah. So do you have like a little bit of misphonia? I'm not trying to place this on you, Heather. Have you heard about this misphonia? No. Misphonia is like the um, people who have very sensitive hearing to certain, like the fingernails scratching on a chalkboard. Oh, I have that. A lot of things do that to people with misphonia. And they're just walking around very, very sensitive to auditory input. Could it be even just the sound of one person's voice? Because Not that I'm yes. looking at Heather or anything. but Actually, you're yes. looking at Charlie when you said that. And I was, I was trying not to look at you to make it obvious. Yeah. The worst thing yes. is that chewing over the phone, it feels louder oh, than in yes. person. You have misphonia. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And then my daughter, when she chews gum in the backseat of the car, I'm just like, oh, my God. Yeah, chewing is a very... Oh, is she's one got of the, the, the commonest complaints for people I, with misphonia. I'm so glad there's a diagnosis yeah. for this. <laughs> or the other thing that drives me crazy, and we'll be eating dinner, and my husband will, instead of talking when he has no food, he'll like put a big bite in his mouth, Oh yeah, take a couple bites, put it to the side, and then talk. I'm like, I can see it, and I yes. still can hear it. Yes. That could Even suggest though you're not more, chewing. This could be more than misphonia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Psychosis. Yeah. All right. Anyway, the opposite of misphonia, not quite the opposite. You know, this. I think it's called ESMR. The people who love certain sounds, like like they like listening to podcasts with voice, breathy voices, Uh, or or the sounds of saran wrap being Uh peeled, Hmm. like the the sound of plastic being peeled off a package or something. Oh, interesting. People like. Go to the internet and listen to that. Like, go to YouTube. Like Velcro. Listen. Yeah, Velcro. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, enough of that tangent. Yeah. Okay. You know, Back my to sister, methadone. though, other thing, my sister hates... We're still going? ...fabrics. So, um, like, if I were to, like, go like this, oh, she, yeah. she could hear the scratching on, like, the sweat. Interesting. Any fabric, she just... Even synthetics? I bet synthetics aren't as bad. Not, I, you know, I, Molly, let us know, but Ugh. she just hates. And, and if uh. other people are touching their own fabric, it just makes her crawl. Even if she can't hear it. Or God, it must be hard fabrics. to be that her. sensitive. <laughs> it's hard to be her. <laughs> but I mean, she's wearing clothes. She's totally fine. But it's just like the yeah. movement over it. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. All right. That was an aggression. Back to methadone and COVID. Yeah. All right. So what happened when COVID hit, when you have these people coming to this clinic six days a week, a lot of them versus... Yeah. Or did they just stop? A leftover a leftover question from last podcast was um, how many people on a given day? Oh, yeah, that's true. And so if a clinic is, let's say, 500 to 1,000, anywhere in there, and in our community almost, well, a lot of the clinics are between 500 and 1,000 patients, pre-COVID, half of them maybe a third to half of them would show up on any given day. That's a and lot. And you'd have, people. yeah, hundreds of people coming through that. And that's like, by comparison, that's more people than go through a busy emergency department in a day. But, you know, so yeah. a busy emergency department's wow. not going to see 200 people. 
but a methadone clinic will. And um, so a lot of people going through those clinics, they're often using public transit. Sometimes they're living in some kind of communal living, an apartment building or a, a shelter maybe, or they sometimes staying with friends or family or extended family. So they're living in communal settings. They're using public transit. There's hundreds of people coming through the lobby every single day. And the lobbies are obviously big and spacious, no, like no. Trump hotels. No, they're 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 economical. I mean, they like move people through. They're small, and you can't see the uh, the space we're in now. But the lobby is smaller. Than is that. probably our you know a, a typical lobby might be smaller than like a comfortable basement. Let me put it that way. You know, it's 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 not a big space, uh, and people they you know of course like just like anywhere else, it's not like we had high tech. HEPA filters and ventilation systems. Nobody's thinking about COVID before it happens. And if if you see, let's say, 250 patients in a day, you might get 50 drug screens. You might get 20, 25. You might get as many as 50, depending on the clinic's policy. Some clinics test more than others. So, um, yeah, you could easily see 50 drug screens, dozens of people in the lobby at a given time, and they're high-risk individuals in the sense of their exposure to COVID, possibly. And then you put them in a room with a counselor or a nurse. And, and then, yep, right. So there's no exactly. such thing as social distancing in no. a methadone clinic. No, it's a very close contact. And type. so what did you do? Right. So, I mean, this was in 2020, and the feds were actually quite responsive and quite good. And this came from, this was under the Trump administration, and his administration was good on this front. And it, but it mostly came from the federal agency that oversees methadone, which is SAMHSA. Um, and then the SAMHSA is also aligned with something called CSAT, C-S-A-T. Anyways, um, they very quickly waived many of our requirements. And we had a, requ- a whole system of determining whether people could get carryouts. And we were sort of trying to see people as much as we could. But during COVID, um, we were allowed to basically give as many carryouts as was safe. And, you and quick, yeah. yeah, I mean, so you could give out as many as it's safe. That's very vague. It's totally vague. And it was interpreted differently by everyone. So some clinics didn't change much and some clinics changed radically. Um, and so it was a very vague it was uh, it allowed a lot of discretion on the part of the clinics, um, mm. and so I mean, you basically must have had to go through every chart. Yeah, I mean that would have been that is the right thing to do, I think. And you know, we we did that. We went through all the charts, uh, and I think that make making a decision about each individual in light of COVID. How many doses can we safely give them? Not like business as usual, according to all the old approach to methadone therapy, but like in in today's COVID pandemic, what what can we safely do? And let's maximize that. So yeah, it is like a very it can be individual, patient by patient, rather than everybody obeys the same rules. You can literally look at each patient individually and make a decision for that patient. Does does this change as we've seen waves? Because you know we COVID waves. Yeah, we're see we've had all these COVID waves, and did you 
could you change on a dime? Like just boom, I'm okay, we're back to our old way? Um, well, so Minnesota, so the federal exception that allows you to give extra carryouts as long as it's safe, um, vague, it's, that exception is still in place. Um, but Minnesota specifically actually, as a state, reversed it. So Minnesota is back to the old system. Uh, and we could reevaluate everyone. It would take effort, but it might take at least a week, probably honestly two weeks, because you got to get all the nurses, the counselors, the doctors, you got to get everyone talking about all these things. And then you got to shift gears and you got to communicate with all the patients. A lot of times they're not happy about these changes. They, mm. they were happy to get the extra carryouts. They're not happy when the carryouts are taken away. Wow. But, but no, I don't know that anybody really changed with the different, you know, Delta versus Omicron versus, I don't think that, I think when OTPs were allowed to give extra takeouts, each OTP made a decision for themselves how they were going to approach that and they implemented it. And I think most of them probably just stuck with the new system Mm. until in Minnesota, we were forced to move back. By whom? The state. Yeah, Yeah. but like who, who oversees that? Um. Boy, I think it's the Department of Human Services. I think DHS in Minnesota is one who oversees. Although some of these things have been legislated as well. Some of the uh, methadone requirements have been legislated in the last few years. So how did you evaluate patients? And I know you said you went through them all individually and tried to make the best decision, but how did that change over time? Because if a patient was doing well and could you space them out even during COVID and what if they were struggling, like... How did that work, especially with the constraints of the clinic and the risks and all the things? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, my thought on this is, so we used to have, we used to think of, and we do again now, we, we think of patients in a very like holistic sense. So if they're struggling with their housing, if they're struggling with COPD or asthma, if they're struggling with legal issues, or if they're struggling with another drug, these are all these things separate from opioids, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're here for opioid treatment, but we were thinking about the other drugs they were using, the legal issues, the social issues, the financial issues, and we would potentially have them coming in more often um, to see the counselor if they if we thought they were unstable in any of those things. Well, in the pandemic, with all the uncertainty, with a lot of anxiety about COVID, um, if they're having one of those other secondary issues, we maybe looked a little, we brought them in a less often for those things. The primary issue is opioid safety and, and, Community. Di- and diversion mm-hmm. safety and in community public health. So public health and do we know that they're going to be safe with their methadone doses or do we really believe that they're going to be safe with their methadone doses and um, trying to help them be sober from opioids and not overdose on opioids. Those became the primary things in COVID and all this other stuff that we used to do and now we're doing it again, all the holistic stuff about all the other things in their life we sort of sidelined some of that, honestly. But every clinic was different. Did yeah. any of that social type stuff get better during 
cope, even though you weren't able personally to do it, but with all the other support things that kind of came out to help people in general during COVID, did that help any of the patients? When we went back, um, and I keep talking about we as if it's me or my clinic, but I think this, I'll speak just generally in the community. When the, when the Minnesota treatment community went back to the old regulations, many patients told us that they got a therapeutic benefit from not needing to come in as often. That they, they're like, I spent that time that I used to be spending going to the methadone clinic doing other valuable things in my life. Wow. Um, you know, so we did, you know, I think that there were some patients that didn't like going back to the old system. Well, the obvious question with that then is, what did it do to your retention? Uh, during COVID, uh, and when you, and then what did it do to your retention when you went back to the old way? Did did you notice a drop off? Right. So the um, there's what is noticed, and then there's what is studied <laughs> or proven. Huh? Maybe I'll just quickly go through the studies that are done on this. Okay. Just like quickly run them down. Yeah, yeah. I, no, that'd be it's good. almost like I knew what you had written down. Yeah, and I don't. <laughs> I'm just magically. Or because we've maybe half taped something yeah, yeah. similar we've discussed this before but what? he's the lost episode. He, you know he had a birthday so was i there still working the through the tapes. dementia <laughs> uh yeah um okay so here's what's studied about the changes that covid brought with the regulations loosening the regulations allowing for more takeouts you used to need to come in according to all these strict rules now you're getting a lot more takeouts than you ever used to get first of all fortunately Right away, early on, after the regulations, there actually was an increase in methadone deaths up in, uh, I think, nationwide. And that was a 20% increase in methadone Ooh, deaths. Uh, opioid, Yeah, so, and that was brief. And then it went away, went back to normal. And actually, you all just presented in your echo a few weeks ago. Methadone deaths are actually falling lately. It's all fentanyl deaths these days. So yeah. when you say a methadone death, and I'm going to a little bit of stickler on this is this methadone involved or was it that's they only had methadone on board you know what i mean like was this due to the patient having an extra take home and taking it too soon or taking it extra or whatever or is it due to i'm on methadone and i still can't take something on top of this and life is stressful so it would have happened regardless of how much they had at home seems like that could have been a shorter question but okay go ahead go ahead it's it's not known the answer is not fully known Uh, it's they it's this like deaths reported as from methadone and it's not known whether it was even methadone that came from pain clinics versus methadone uh, treatment clinics, opioid addiction treatment clinics. It's not known where the methadone came from or whether the person was enrolled or not in methadone clinics at the time of their death wow. or where they got the methadone from. It's just this was designated the cause of death. Hmm. and it. But, I mean, it is, you know, coincidental with loosening regulations on takeouts. Right. So there was that. Like I said, that was for a month or so, and then it went back to normal. Even though takeouts were still, had the regulations loosened, the methadone deaths went, you know, back to the prior level. So it was just a brief bump in methadone deaths. Uh, that's unfortunate, but that did happen. Um, then um, the other thing, uh, research, one of the changes for COVID-era methadone clinics is that they could do telehealth counseling rather than face-to-face counseling. So the counselors that have all these counseling requirements can now do that by telephone or by video visit Uh in general, research shows that for buprenorphine clinics, 
telehealth has improved access and retention. People who can do video visits and telephone visits for buprenorphine, it improved retention and access. We don't know that for methadone, but that's sort of a related study. For sure, both patient and provider satisfaction in methadone clinics improved. Hmm. So both the patients and the clinicians were glad to have, we're really glad to have these exceptions for COVID. So satisfaction went up, but the most important outcomes are death, um, diversion, um, retention. Those are the most important outcomes. They have not yet been studied. They're being studied now. Um, So there's a big multi-center study um, of the important outcomes of these COVID changes. And it's just, it's just, we don't know yet what those out, what happened with those outcomes. There's, but there's a lot of these like other smaller studies. Is Gavin doing that? Yeah. Is he really? Gavin Bart? Yeah. 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 Yeah, He's one of, Gavin Bart's one of the studies. He's doing a lot of the local opioid research in Minnesota. He's done a lot of good stuff. Cool. I so, wish I was as smart as him. Heather. <laughs> You're, You're never going to you be are, there. You are as smart as him in, in a different way. Yeah. In a real <laughs> special way. <laughs> um, You're, you you're know, good at treating thingies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're back to thingies. Yeah. Oh, man. When thingies um, go wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, my my observation is that the is that separate from... All the changes to methadone clinics, fentanyl was on the rise, anyways. Right. So it mm. it is kind of hard to know if someone if mortality goes up, is it that fentanyl was on the rise, anyways, or is it that we loosened regulations in methadone clinics? That's a good yeah. point. Um, so, now, but, but I think I think it went okay. I think it went okay. So as far as like patient themselves retention, obviously patients who were already doing well and were already spaced out, and now they maybe have to come back sooner, or people that were kind of on that couple times a week, get to go to once a week or twice a month. Have any of them decided, you know, I was doing well at home. Yes, I was on my methadone, but maybe I should get off or maybe I should transition to something where I don't have to go as often. Like, did anybody kind of have these epiphanies or not that you've seen I, yet? I think when when clinics switched back to the old ways, a lot of people reevaluated. A lot of people expressed frustration. A lot of people said... I was doing just fine for the last six months getting this number of takeouts, and now you're making me go back to mm. more visits. And why is that? And is this clinic really the right fit for me? Whether it's affected retention or not, I, I can't say, but there was a lot of people were frustrated mm-hmm. when the system went back to the old way. Yeah. Did they explain why? Like, why? why? To go back? Like, one, what was the significance of the timing when they decided, hey, we're going back right now versus let's see how this goes when, you know, for more, because I feel like they went back pretty quickly yeah. as far as, okay, COVID's leveled. Let's do it right now. Why not just wait a little bit longer and see how it continues to go when life settles? Or, so what was the reasoning for the I can't timing? Speak to the reason. I can't tell you why the state did that. I do think it was after the Delta wave. Um, and before the Omicron wave, and it seemed like a window where we were, we felt like we were in the clear. <laughs> mm. We're never in the, we, we may never be in the clear, I don't know, but we felt like we were in the clear. And I think Minnesota has a long history of being a little bit um, strict with methadone clinics. Minnesota, either DHS or the legislature or both, the Minnesota government. Uh, and that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing. But I, I think 
Minnesota's always kind of had a heavy hand with the methadone clinics. Hmm. Minnesota government has. And uh, we had a little bit of a clearing post-Delta. And I think they just said it's time to go back to the old way. Hmm. Uh, but I can't really speak speak to why. It's just interesting, like, the timing and why why it had to be so black and white, you know, versus maybe we could, like, find a happier ground, maybe loosen a little bit. Well. I mean, weighing the federal well, regulations. Yes. And- so I actually made an uh, allusion to this in the prior podcast, and they actually now, DHS, is in a process of sort of selectively looking at waivers or uh, variances, whatever their terminology is, where now they're saying for very stable patients, maybe you don't need to counsel quite as often. And for transfers, and you asked about patients transferring from one clinic to another, maybe we could make that transfer less painful for both the clinic and the patient. So it's a little bit of a smoother transfer. So the state is now experimenting with loosening some regulations okay. to like sort of, and they're, I, you know, they're doing it in a slow and conservative way, but they're also doing it in a smart way in that they're selectively doing a few things and then they're seeing how it goes and and they are showing some willingness to work with the programs. Were the, were the Gavin Barts of the world, the minute these regulations changed, were they on that right away wanting to get real time data. data as opposed to going retrospective? Uh, and like, <laughs> but you know, now we're looking back and saying, okay, did these people think it was better? Or were they following these patients right away, trying to, trying to see what the impact was going to be? I think it was a mix. I bet most clinics didn't do any data tracking. Yeah. Um, I bet some clinics uh, just baseline are tracking all their data all the time. And I think there were many people a lot of the methadone therapy is actually centered in new york boston san francisco there are a lot of smart people out there (laughs) like (laughs) lots of smart people in those cities there's lots of smart people everywhere but there's a lot of research-minded people in new york Mm. boston and san francisco so there's a lot of researchers that were involved in Mm -hmm. the changes that was mostly coastal but um yeah, to your question, Gavin is tied into that All research that. community, and yep. he's aware of the studies being done. So, yeah, for sure, there was a subset of the clinics that were. I mean, I can't believe that the research people, when this changed, are thinking this is going to be an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, okay. Hopefully, so, they captured that data. I, yeah. I don't know if that's your point. Hopefully, yeah, somebody was watching. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like, whoa. So uh, I, I think I, a lot of clinics out there weren't tracking. Like maybe we've been too restrictive and. There's a way. Well, I think a lot of the world, though, was kind of scrambling. And, you know, the last thing you needed to do was data. Sorry for the data people out there. But, you know, clinically trying to survive survive and take care of people alive. And so as far as what you just mentioned with, and this is a little bit off of methadone clinics and COVID kind of, but you mentioned, obviously, there's this um, maybe a hope to kind of make this transitions easier for patients. And, of course, this all coincided with fentanyl. Yep. And so the numbers, especially, you know, we've seen in buprenorphine clinics, and you've seen this, is that sometimes it seems that patients who are using fentanyl almost need that methadone clinic because it's a higher yep. ability, a higher dose. Yep. So is there, I mean, if if that's the case and there's already poor access, is there any talk about taking those patients or at least encouraging or counseling the patients who are on the one month or whatever to maybe transition to a buprenorphine clinic so then it's even maybe a little less restrictive to kind of open up space for people who 
are more acute yeah. and new to so this recovery. Is, so, I mean, I think that's a, a really great question. The, there's a lot of questions here, but the question that I'm hearing, which is, I think, really interesting <laughs> yes, <there> and challenging, <laughs> is how can we select if buprenorphine is an expanding treatment, which theoretically we could scale buprenorphine up, mm-hmm. whereas methadone is kind of capped right now right right um it's and it's we're, you know it's capped based on honestly how many counselors we have in our state that are doing methadone is like somewhat the limiting factor right now because mm-hmm. every counselor can only carry so many patients mm-hmm. and that's the cap for the clinic um so if there's a capped methadone and there's scalable buprenorphine how can we smartly pick which patients will do best in which mm. context so how can we smartly triage patients to methadone versus buprenorphine? And I don't have the answer to that. And I wish we could pick the, because I mean, I don't know how many times I've had patients start one or the other, and then it didn't go great. And they wanted to switch to the other one. Right. And I just like, well, we spun our wheels there for three to six months and potentially put the patient at risk by starting one that they didn't respond to and then switching them to the other. You know, because you're on both sides of this and and we've with fentanyl we've seen that sometimes these inductions are can be difficult yeah. and a lot of these patients have had precipitated withdrawal on yep. the street. Yep. And so sometimes the inductions can be not perfect like it was with heroin yep. where yeah. but yet methadone isn't methadone just a much easier way off with the fentanyl? I mean with, it's a flag you just to, Yep. To do the inductions pretty straight it's the same. Yeah. We're doing the same induction yeah. that we've been doing that methadone clinics have been and the doing response is the same yeah, yeah and the response is the same yeah i mean i th- i have found anecdotally mm. that some patients now are slightly high like 10 percent higher doses of methadone mm. we're getting more patients that are still using fentanyl at a dose of 100 which mm-hmm. it used to be 95 percent or more of heroin users would not use heroin if they were on 100 milligrams of methadone mm. I mean, 95% easy or more. And now I, it's not uncommon for every day I hear about someone still using fentanyl on 100 milligrams of methadone. You know, so we'll go up. So we need to go up a little higher on the dosing of methadone. Um, but besides that, it's basically the same. Yeah. You so, know, whereas with bup, that ceiling effect, you can't sometimes take those cravings away very quickly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we need to cap this, cap this part at least and put this okay. to the maybe transitioning thing we had just talked about a transitioning one because i have more questions on this topic but it's totally not related to the covid so let's go back to that okay covid changes methadone what else do you have on your paper over there um i think we talked about most of it i think just want to speak to some of dan's concerns Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and the other element that may have to do with covid that plays into all of this is that in minnesota Clinics are largely paid for on a capitated basis, meaning we get the same amount of money whether you come in five days a week or you come in one day a week, and we get the same amount of money. Uh, and it's sort of the honor system that we're going to do deliver good professional medical care to the patients. Mm-hmm. And so it's a capitated system. Other clinics elsewhere in other states are paid more on a fee-for-service basis. Mm. So if they do a drug screen, they can bill your insurance company. If they do a breathalyzer, they can bill your insurance company. Um, And certain of the services provided by the methadone clinics in other states, the more they do, the more money they make. So there's, 
you can be cynical about either system and you can also see the benefit of either system, but you can also in your mind at least think about why are they having me come in so often or why am I doing all these urine drug screens and breathalyzers? It is important. It is important in America to always back up and ask, follow the money. Mm. Uh, You know, why are they getting paid? How are they getting paid? Mm -hmm. Is there an economic incentive for me? Um, for them to be bringing me in and doing drug screens on me? Or do they really believe that they're doing, is it only for medical, the medical right thing? So I, I do think it's important to note for Dan, um, there's a lot of variability from clinic to clinic. There's a lot of variability from state to state. And there's different financial reimbursement models. And all of those things might affect why any given person feels like they're being unnecessarily brought into clinic and they really wish that they could get more takeouts. Like, yeah, yeah, they're feeling like policed or, you know, totally. caged and that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, and, that, and that does get back to Heather, you and I were talking at the beginning of the prior podcast about this all started in the seventies and there was a whole different war on drugs, criminalizing drug users kind of vibe back in the seventies. And, um, this may have fit that time, and I don't know. Maybe in 2020, it's it's a good time to step back and reevaluate how we run these clinics. Yeah, I think that might be so, a good time to rethink and, it. And in the last one, you talked about the Portugal model with methadone clinics yeah. and the trucks, and it's great because this whole decriminalization thing we're starting to like get our feet wet in in Minnesota. I love the Portugal model again. Yeah, so it's they like, decriminalized hmm, in Portugal too. We yeah. should. Yeah. go to Portugal field trip, learn what they're oh doing. Oh my gosh! I, I have you been to Portugal? No, that's oh, so great. Mm. No, I was just going to say, so we're moving away from Dano, just Dan. Oh, Dan. No, we, we never were at Dano, just you were. He's old, Dan, so like, okay, you're you don't like remember, his grandchild. You don't remember that show, Bookum Dano? No. Oh, there's a Clash song. Nobody knows what you're talking about. song with Dano. In all it. the TV we've watched has all been in color. As opposed oh, Boyo. Bookum Boyo. I don't know. Bookum anyway, Dano. Oh, man. Okay. Anyway. Old cop show. Anyway, Dan, thank you for this great question. Yeah, and I, hopefully I, we addressed it. I like the way you ended with those big three points, that the differences in regulations at different levels in different states and how it's really impacting the actual patient. Yep, and there's a lot of variation from clinic to clinic, and that is frustrating. Yeah. Well, I'll let you end this, Heather. <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody has any further questions or anything you want to email us, like Dan and our other worldly friends have, or Dan, if you have further questions, you know how to reach us. But otherwise, the Addiction Connection Podcast at Gmail. So I'll let Casey take over. Thank you. Keep your eyes well peeled today. The excise man is on his way. Searching for the mountain tay in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the old tin can. The mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man. Keep the smoke from rising barney. Man will dance all night, drinking up the tea in the broad daylight in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots of the old tin can, the mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising barney. Down for the butcher, a quart for Tom, a bottle for old Father John, to help the poor old man along in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots of the old tin can, the mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising barney. The 
nice men are at the wall Jesus Christ, they're drinking it all In the hills of Connemara Together up the pots in the olden can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Run like the devil from the excise man Keep the 